My guest today is Professor Lisa Wesselund, who is Professor of Economics at the University of Pittsburgh. She's a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. She is also on the board of editors of the Journal of Economic Perspectives and of the Experimental Economics Journal. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. So um, we want to talk about your book uh, in more detail, but I want to start with a couple of your papers. One of them uh, from 2017. For instance, in accepting and receiving requests for tasks with low promotability, you say here gender differences in task allocations may sustain vertical gender segregation in labor markets. We examine the allocation of a task that everyone prefers be completely by someone else, writing a report, serving on a committee, etc. I'm very familiar with this, Lisa. And, and find evidence that women more than men volunteer, are asked to volunteer, and accept requests to volunteer for such tasks. So there are three things here. Um, they volunteer, are asked to volunteer, and accept requests to volunteer. So there are three, three major things here. So, so what's happening here? Well, so part of what we tried to do in the paper was to um, sort of begin to shed light on the fact that work assignments that employees get vary in how promotable they are, meaning the extent to which your um, your organization is going to recognize the effort that you put into that work. So in lots of, certainly in academia, we all know what the promotable work is. It's writing papers and presenting at conferences, getting grants, uh, where serving on internal committees, sitting on faculty senate tends to be the work that we get a lot less credit for. Um, but all of these sort of less promotable tasks or what we call them in the paper, um, we often refer to them as being non-promotable tasks, are tasks that are important to the organization but don't get a lot of recognition. And the reason why we wrote this paper was that we saw a lot of evidence in a lot of different organizations and we've done a number of studies afterwards that point to women more than men carrying these non-promotable tasks. And what we wanted to understand in this paper is what the mechanism might be that leads to these gender differences uh, in work assignments. Um, we could imagine that women are doing more of the non-promotable tasks because they're better at them. It could be that they have the comparative advantage in the non-promotable task. It could be that they enjoy these tasks more. And as, as you said, you know, these tasks could be being on a committee, it could be doing office housework, it could be sitting with a less revenue generating client. So there's a, a big portfolio of sort of these non-promotable tasks. And we wanted to understand what is the dynamics that might lead to women taking on more of these tasks? Is it just that they are different from men? Is it that they have different preferences or skills? Um, right. And when we sort of thought about the way that we ourselves, the, the co-authors on, on this paper had been assigned, uh, ended up with non-promotable tasks, sometimes we ended, ended up with non-promotable tasks because we ourselves had raised our hand at a meeting to say, sure, we will take it on. So uh, one of the meetings that I often go to is a promotion and tenure meeting. And what happens at the promotion and tenure meeting is that the dean comes in at the very beginning of the meeting and asks if somebody will chair the committee. 
which sounds like a lovely assignment, but chairing the committee just means that you get to write a report after the committee meeting and you get to take notes during the meeting. So lo and behold, nobody wants to take on this assignment. So we wanted to understand this dynamic that happens when we're asking for a volunteer for yeah. an assignment that everybody knows has to be done, but everyone yeah. prefers um, someone else to do. So we, um, I have a big laboratory um, at the University of Pittsburgh where we uh, run behavioral experiments. So we brought a bunch of uh, undergraduates into the laboratory and we paired them in groups of three people and told them that each group of three people, they didn't get to see one another, would have two minutes uh, to decide whether or not they wanted to click a button on their computer. Mm. And if no one in this group, they're all sitting by individual computers, they don't know exactly who they're paired with. But if no one clicks the button after the two minutes, everyone in the group will get a dollar. Mm. But if you click the button in your group, you will get a dollar 25. So you're going to be happier. Yeah. It, the catch is that the two other people in your group will get two dollars. So if everybody is going to be happier, you're going to be happier for clicking. It's just that the two other people will be even happier. So if no one clicks, everybody gets a dollar. If you click, you get a dollar twenty-five, and the two other people get two dollars. So someone should just click. And of course, yeah. this is a coordination game with lots of different equilibria. Um, but we wanted to see in this setting, if you're paired with three people, who is it who ends up clicking the button after two minutes? Um, and the participants who came in, they were given 10 different opportunities to be in a group. They were in different groups with random rematching each round. So we, we looked at this environment to see who is it who volunteers in the setting, who is it who clicks the button to the benefit of the rest of the group. Hmm. And what we found uh, quite strikingly was that across these 10 different groups, women always volunteered more than men. Hmm. In fact, they volunteered 48% more than their male peers. So from the very beginning of the experiment to the very end, we see women sort of repeatedly clicking this button. Now, of course, the key interest here is not just whether or not we get a gender gap in volunteering, which we found, yeah. but also why we get this gender gap. Now, if we're in the labor market and we see differences in work assignments, we could say, well, that's because men and women have different skills. Now, the benefit of the laboratory is that I have a lot of control. And uh, in this particular case, the skill that was required was clicking a button. And it turns out that lo and behold, men and women are equally good at clicking buttons on computers. So we <laughs> yeah. can rule, we can rule, rule out this possibility that it's coming from differences in ability. So it's not skill that's driving this. But one possibility is that it could be preferences. It could be that yeah. Women, when they come into these mixed gender groups, are more concerned about the collective. It could be that they're more altruistic. They look at the groups and they say somebody should just click the, the button and they benefit more from the collective su succeeding. So it could be that women are more altruistic. It could also be that they're more risk averse and worried about this not being provided. So um, it could be that preferences cost women to volunteer more. So to try to understand if it's preferences that is driving this. We decided to do uh, what I think is a, a very nice manipulation on the first experiment. So what we did was we said, let's see what happens if we only have women in groups. 
So what happens if we run an experiment where only women show up? And how often are women, only women going to volunteer compared to if we only have men show up? Now, if we think about these experiments, it's run the same way. It's just that only women show up to the experiment. So I know I'm going to be paired with another woman. Now, if you imagine that the female population somehow has different preferences, then we should see the all female groups volunteer more often than the all male groups. So a nice uh, part of this all male or female comparison is that it helps us to see whether or not the preferences are what is driving it. So we ran that experiment and lo and behold, it turns out that when we take the men out of the female group so that it's all women, suddenly women can rely on other women to volunteer. So the overall rate of volunteering goes down for each individual woman. And similarly, once we remove the women from the groups with men, it turns out that they actually know how to click the button. So suddenly they are volunteering just as much as the women. So the all female and the all male groups are identical, which shows that the differences we're seeing in the mixed gender setting where women volunteered more are not coming from differences in preferences. Rather, it is coming from the collective expectations that we have in mixed gender groups, which are that women are the ones who will be taking on this task. So the experiment sort of very nicely demonstrates that this difference in volunteering that we find is coming from expectations. So, so I want to take an economic perspective to this, Lisa. So, um, I mean, I haven't really thought through this, but uh, I don't know how academic institutions work, but uh, from the private industry perspective, um, if if a principal of the firm, if his or her incentives are fully aligned with shareholder value maximization, let's say, um, resource allocation would be then directed to shareholder value maximization. So in a situation where men and women are equally competent in strategic activities, um, getting promoted and contributing to the firm, but for whatever reason, women are more adept at tactical activities. I'm just making this up. Uh, then the principal's resource allocation question would be to allocate the, the tactical activities to the women, right? Is that what you're observing or I'm making this up? So I, I think the key thing in what we're observing um, is that the norms and culture that we are raised in cause us to expect that women that women more than men will take on assignments that are benefiting the collective but not themselves. Now, if we take this into an organization, um, the, the, the challenge in an organization is precisely that what an organization wants to do is that they want to allocate work based on comparative advantage. Yeah. The person who's best at working with the big revenue client uh, in a comparative advantage sense is the person who should be working with the big revenue client. And the challenge when we can show that these expectations that we have will lead to biases in the way that we allocate work. What that means is that we're not going to be able to identify who has that comparative advantage. 
Uh, we have recent data um, where we have been following, this is a study in progress, but where we're following um, MBA students in their first year in, in business school, second year in business school, and then the first year after they have entered the job market. And very disturbingly, what we can see for that cohort one year after graduation is that controlling for field, controlling for the industry that they're going into, that women within one year of being on the job market, more than their male peers are assigned non-promotable tasks, more than their male peers are assigned office housework. Yeah. Now, it's not to say that we should have men and women always do the same assignment, but from an organizational perspective, I should give myself enough time to figure out who has the comparative advantage at the work that matters most to me. And seeing that we so quickly, after entering, entering the job market, end up getting different work assignments is, should be very concerning for an organization because it means that they're not going to be able to identify uh, the true underlying talent. And one of yeah. the things, so it's not just, you know, what I talked about was sort of this component where we just see volunteering. You know, it's easy to look at that study and just say, well, women should just stop volunteering. Um, but as you correctly pointed out, it's not just a question of volunteering. We also have a follow-up experiment to sort of try to see um, what happens if we actually look at who's being asked to take on one of these non-promotable assignments. So we ran a study where we have a fourth person come in to sort of the, the same experiment. And at the beginning of the experiment, that fourth person gets to send a message to one of the three people uh, that are the potential, are the workers in the group to say, hey, could you please be the one who clicks the button? So <laughs> now it's like you're being voluntold at a meeting, you know, you're sitting at a meeting and suddenly somebody said, hey, Gil, you're so good at doing the holiday party. How about if you do it? <laughs> it becomes much harder to say no if you've been asked so publicly. So that's the right. manipulation that we did in part to see whether this expectation again was confirmed, namely that women more than men would be asked. And indeed, the fourth person is incentivized to ask someone that they think will volunteer. Yeah. And what happens in, in this follow-up study is that indeed, as we would expect, managers ask women more than they ask men. Of course, there's lots of heterogeneity, uh, but the distribution of requests uh, going to women first order stochastically dominates yeah. that of men. Uh, women are asked 44% more uh, than their male peers. And they are asked more at exactly the same rate, both by male and female managers. So it gets back to this sort of collective expectation that we all hold. We all want to ask the person who's going to say yes. And in this case, we all think that the women are the ones who are more likely to say yes. Now, of course, an interesting question is, is, is it actually a good idea to ask these women if they're getting so many more requests? Could it possibly, if you want to get the job done, is it a good idea to ask women? And it turns out that it is a really good idea to ask women because they <laughs> say yes, 50% more than their male peers. So we get this, you know, very disturbing pattern where it's not just that women are volunteering more. We also ask them more and we all ask them more. And when we ask them, they're more likely to say yes. So um, the, the fact that we can show that this is not just a question of skill or preferences, yeah. but that our expectations are contributing to that suggests 
that yeah. if we're not aware of this bias that causes us to ask women more, that as organizations, we're going to end up making mistakes where we misallocate assignments early on um, that prevent us from identifying who the, the truly talented employees are and who should be doing the most valued work in the organization. Yeah, so for the agent, um, it's also a risk management issue. So if I have a higher probability of getting an acceptance, asking a woman as opposed to a man, then uh, from the agent's perspective, that is a more optimum path because they don't want to look bad. So I ask somebody, uh, you know, there is a 65% chance of getting acceptance, uh, a woman, and then I ask a man, there's only a 32% chance of getting acceptance. I'm always going to manage my risk that way, right? So it, it is sort of a self-reinforcing mechanism in organizations, would you say? Well, so the, uh, a couple of things. Um, when you, let me start with self-reinforcing. Um, the, 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 the key part about expectations driving this is that the women will have very, if you are expected to say yes, yeah. you don't have a lot of room to say no. Uh, so there is uh, an interesting study by Heilman and Chen that shows that indeed, if we're trying to figure out who we want to hire and who we want to work with, um, if we're looking at a potential female candidate who has said yes to, to help someone out, of course, she's viewed as being better as someone who has said no. But a woman who says yes is seen as equivalent to a woman who has never been asked. So saying yes doesn't get you a benefit. The, the baseline is already that you're going to say yes, whereas if you say no, right. you get negative backlash. If instead the potential candidate is a male, a male who says yes is better than a male who says no, but a male who says no is seen as equivalent to a male who's never been asked. So right. these expectations that we have give women very little room to say no, because there's going to be negative, there's going to be backlash hmm. if they decline to take it on. So um, self-reinforcing, it's sort of, you know, you could say, oh, you should just say no, but it's very hard to say no if you're faced with this expectation. Now, in terms of the, the manager's perspective, it is indeed the case that you could say, oh, but the manager should just ask the women because they're going to say yes rather than asking the males. Now, I think it's important to recognize that the managers are setting up the rules of the game. They're the ones who are allowing this dynamic to play out. You know, admittedly, there's a reason why we get paid to go to work. It's because we have to do work and the managers are the ones who decide how we do that work, how the work is distributed, and how it is recognized. So um, rather than the manager saying, I asked the women because they say yes, uh, the manager's job is to distribute the work in the best way possible to let their employees and their team reach their best possible potential. And they're not going to do that if they allocate the least rewarded work to an employee just because they say yes. Right? They should allocate the work to the person who has the comparative advantage on yeah. the assignment. Yeah, so the, the manager's bonus depends on it to maximize productivity. So it's sort of a rigged game in the sense that if you say that women are more likely to say yes, 
the agent is going to recognize that early on, and then he or she is going to maximize her bonus by giving assignments to the women because they have a high probability of acceptance. And so, so I'm thinking about sort of a, is there a systematic, systemic solution to this, Lisa? You know, uh, we understand the problem, we see it, but is it sort of rigged? rigged so I don't think there? it's true. It, it, it is not true that you're going to maximize your bonus. Okay. Right? Because you will maximize your bonus if your team produces the most it can. And your team is not going to produce the most it can if you don't figure out who has what type of talent, right? Yeah. So uh, just you're not going to maximize your bonus as a manager if you don't allocate work to the in the correct way. So um, as a manager, you can make people say yes. So uh, some of the recommendations that we have is both that we think about how we allocate work. Uh, we have this notion as economists that when we ask for a volunteer, that the person who's going to admittedly reluctantly raise their hand, that whoever sort of uh, raises their hand is the person who has the lowest opportunity cost of time. Um, that ignores the fact that we're behavioral animals and we're working in a hierarchy where lots of things influence whether or not you're going to raise your hand. And what we've shown very clearly is that when we ask for volunteers, the people who reluctantly will volunteer are those who very often have the least amount of power in an organization. So if you if you want a different distribution of work assignments, you shouldn't ask for volunteers. Oftentimes, if we ask for volunteers, it should be because we're equally happy, independent of who takes on that assignment. So instead of asking for volunteers, Let's do random assignment. Let's take turns. You know, there, there's a better way of distributing the work um, if you really don't care about who's taking on that assignment. So if you don't care who's taking the assignment, just draw names out of a hat. If you do care about who's taking on the assignment, put the responsibility on the manager so they think about what is the opportunity cost of putting somebody on a holiday committee or putting somebody on an undergraduate curriculum review? Would it be better to give this person time to write an article or would it be better to have this person on a major client or a product development? So, you know, putting the responsibility back on the manager to say, what is the best use of this employee's time so that they don't fall into this trap of just saying, I'm just going to ask whoever's going to say yes, because I know I get a yes and change the structure so that you end up with an incentive structure so that more people end up saying yes. Yeah, I quite like this, uh, Lisa. So I wrote a book in 2009. It's called Flexibility, Flexible Companies for the Uncertain World. And I argue somewhat harshly that men are not capable of taking leadership positions in complex organizations. So complex companies, countries, and so on and so forth. And, and the reasoning was, I don't know if I'm right, the reasoning is that men has a process orientation. We are process optimizers, and that is just an evolutionary quirk. We woke up in the morning, went out hunting, you know, brought meat back, and you know, that's what we have been doing 50,000 years. Because women had to actually 
manage very, very complex organizations. And so if you look at sort of recent historical data, you can see really good leaders of companies are typically typically women, and not many people in the US bought this book. Uh, so New Zealand, Germany, Scandinavia, so you got Angela Merkel, you got Jacinda Ardern. We have some fantastic examples of great leaders. Um, and so there's a there is a gender uh, asymmetry here in terms of leadership, in terms of management. But the problem that you're highlighting is that there is a barrier that when you enter an organization or an academic institution, there is there is a set of biases. They don't let the the really capable people to rise to the top. And I mean, we have observed this for the last 60, 70, 100 years. And um, you know, I I, I asked your uh, your colleague Claudia about this, and she she said things are improving, but I'm not exactly sure if things are improving. I don't I don't really see things are improving. What do you think? I mean, I think that's. You know, first of all, I don't know if I'm willing to say that that women are better leaders in general. I think there is heterogeneity. Uh, there's, and and the fact is that there's some, you know, one of the the characteristics we have of the non-promotable task is that a non-promotable task tends to not contribute directly to the organization's mission. It tends to be uh, invisible or less visible, and very importantly, it tends to be work. Uh, that that doesn't use your specialized skills, so many other people can do it, which is exactly why the work always ends up being um, non-promotable because somebody else can do the work, or even if they can't do it as well, it is often a task where an A plus is almost as good as a B B minus. So that's the reason why the work will always be non-promotable, and the reason why I'm bringing that up is that when we think about the people who end up being excellent managers. They have very specialized skills and mm. the return to having specialized skills in that domain are really, really large. And it sort of, it, it, it shows that given that not everybody has these rare specialized skills, it is really important in organizations that we invest resources to identify who is it who has the rare skill? Who is it? who's gonna do a fantastic job working with a client. And so to, to the thing that's gonna set a company apart and, and give them market share is if they identify that unique talent. And they're not gonna identify that if they, based on biases that arise outside of the workplace, end up assigning the less promotable work to the women. Now your, your question and sort of like, are things getting better? Um, the reason why I got interested in gender to begin with uh, was that I'm born and raised in Denmark. Um, Denmark uh, historically has been a far more gender equal society uh, than the US. The labor force participation for women in Denmark is much greater. There, um, you know, in, in terms of comparison to the US, certainly being raised there, I always thought that women could become wherever they wanted. And when I went to graduate school in the US, I was struck uh, both by differential treatment of women, but also by differential behavior by men and women. So in my graduate classes, the women were 
much less likely to speak out uh, than the women were in Denmark. So I was intrigued by the cultural differences, uh, the gender differences between the two countries. But what was really striking to me was despite the fact that the two cultures seemed so different, when it came to advancement, it didn't matter whether or not I looked in the US or in Denmark or pretty much anywhere else, mm. women everywhere had much slower advancement. And it sort of suggests that, yes, things might be getting better. And certainly if we look at sort of representation on boards, representation in the C-suite, things are getting better. They're just moving really, really slowly. Yeah. And the fact that they are um, so similar across countries suggests that there is some um, there is some inherent slackness in the system that is preventing yeah. women from rising to the top. And what is the reason why we chose to write a book? I had no interest in writing a book. I've never written a book before. <laughs> um, it has taken a lot of time both to write it, but also to promote it. Is that I think these early mistakes we do in terms of work assignments end up contributing to many of the gender differences we're seeing. Um, you know, the other paper I sort of sent you is, is subsequent work that we're looking at where, and, and, and we have more work in that domain, you know, what, what's key in what we've found in these work assignments is, first of all, uh, we find in every industry we've looked at, that women more than men are doing the non-promotable work. We worked mm -hmm. with a professional service organization where we found that the women in that organization were spending 200 more hours per year mm -hmm. on non-promotable work. So that's, you know, it's it's more than a month of work uh, that goes unrecognized that women are doing more than their male peers. So it's it's a big problem. It's a problem that shows up in every organization. We show that it's driven by these expectations, which means that we're making mistakes. So those two things uh, sort of suggest that there is a problem here. And what's intriguing in, in the subsequent work that we've done is that it points to that the minute you get these non-promotable assignments, even if those non-promotable assignments are randomly assigned, you're gonna end up making less money because your managers they're sitting back they're looking at um you know how productive their employees are even if they have given sort of the less productive assignment to a worker if they have a worker that's bringing in more revenue because they've been given more time with clients yeah that employee just because of their assignments alone will make more money and very disturbingly that work assignment is also going to influence whether or not you can improve your pay through negotiation, because it turns out that once you have the more valued assignment, you have a better bargaining position. Mm. And once you open up the floor for negotiation, the employee who has been given the more promotable assignment will not only make more pay, but they will raise their pay through negotiation because they can emphasize the bargaining position that they're in. So it quickly translates over into compensation. And in a recent study, we even showed that it 
also translates into how we see the employees. Once you've been given the non-promotable assignment, your employee or employer will see you as being a less qualified worker. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we've been trying to figure out what kind of information can we give the manager so that he starts compensating these two workers more equally. It's very hard for a manager to unpack when he has one in, one worker who is producing more than the other worker. Yeah, so, it's sort of a branding branding exercise in some ways. So I was I was curious about this, uh, Lisa. So you see here, workers with less productive tasks suffer from lower compensation, less clear, and lower ability to improve their compensation through negotiation. So this means that this is sort of a initial conditions problem. Yeah. Yeah. That once you are in that path, it's very difficult to turn back. Yeah. And um, so organizations who want to have more egalitarian and profit maximizing motive need to really think about when the employee walks in the door to really think about this, right? Because if they if if they wait, that employee is going down a path that might be less optimum. Yeah, I mean the challenge is, you know, as I said before, um, and 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 it really is the path dependency that becomes so critical, and that is precisely why. Uh, when we hire new workers, making sure that they get the same opportunities to work on the promotable work is is critical for not just identifying talent, but also for giving them equal treatment. Because uh, once you have the promotable task, like if you think about, you know, we've, we've worked with a lot of organizations where when it comes time for promotion to partner, the male part, the people who are the males who are being evaluated have more revenue generating hours or billable hours than their female colleagues. Now, if you think about having more billable hours, it's not just that it's going to be more likely that you get promoted within the organization and more likely that you get paid more within the organization. But suppose that a female colleague comes in who has fewer billable hours and says, you know, it's not fair. The reason why I have fewer billable hours is because you gave me all these non-promotable assignments. That's why I have fewer billable hours. Now, as much as you may want to say, yes, you're right. The reason why you're not producing as much is because I gave you a worse assignment. The, the challenge is that the male with the more billable hours is more likely to get an outside offer. So yeah. internally, once you have once you have created these differences in work assignments, you can't just equalize the pay because the male or the the worker who has the more promotable work also has a much better outside option. Yeah. So 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 it it really is sort of a um, you you get locked in to the path that you started. Uh, yeah. It is very hard to break it except for making sure that the task assignments end up being equal. Uh, it, it is not an easy problem to solve once you've given the different assignments. And, and as much as we're talking about sort of differences in, in promotable and non-promotable work, what's been intriguing in, in talking to organizations who surprisingly actually have been very excited to try to address this problem because they too can see that this is not what they intend to do. Um, 
they yeah, recognize I mean, that it's not just the promotable and non-promotable, yeah. but even even within the promotable work, the people who get the most recognized, the best clients, tend to be the majority um, in worker. It's it's the white men who are getting the best client, and <laughs> you know one of the studies that we there are a couple of studies that even look at sort of the 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 portfolios you're given when you are hired as a stockbroker. Um, Black stockbrokers from day one are given stock portfolios that have worse sales histories than those who are given to white stockbrokers. So no matter how well you try to do on the portfolios you're given, you're never going to be able to catch up. When you look at the stores that are assigned to, to managers, female managers are getting, given stores that have fewer clients, fewer employees, few, lower sales potential. So these differences and assignments will, no matter yeah. what you do, contribute to what's going to come afterwards. Yeah, this is this is a great insight for me, uh, Lisa. So what, what I'm taking away from this conversation is that the initial conditions matter a lot. So an associate professor walks into a university or an analyst walks into a company, how he or she is treated in the first six months, nine months, two years, have a substantial effect on the end outcome. Yeah. And so there, there's sort of a branding problem. There is an initialization, initial condition problem here. So, so, so I want to finish up with your book. I mean, we didn't get to talk a lot about it. Maybe you can come back <laughs> to talk about this. The book is called The No Club, Putting a Stop to women's dead and work. We talked a bit about that, but you want to sort of summarize what the book is trying to accomplish? Yes, yeah, so that, you know, there are a whole investigation into non-promotable tasks yeah. actually started uh, from the authors of the book uh, getting together as more of a self-help group. So we're all academics and yeah. we were finding ourselves very unhappy with where our careers had gotten and we felt that we were spending far too much time on service committees and um, sort of these non-promotable tasks. So we, we started to meet and try to think strategically about how we could get more control over our work lives. And the book um, both talks about our own experience um, in, in trying to get better work-life balance or work-work balance to, to make sure that we found time for the more promotable uh, work so that we could get the recognition that we felt that we deserved. Um, but then it talks about all the research that we did subsequently to to try to understand whether or not, you know, initially when we talked about non-promotable tasks, we had several male colleagues who also said that they had far too many non-promotable tasks. And lo and <laughs> behold, there are very few people who are excited to do non-promotable work. So, um, that sort of put us on this research path of saying, is it just us? Is everybody doing too much non-promotable work? Are there differences? What might give rise to them? So what started as sort of the self-help group led to all the research. And uh, both I and Linda Babcock, who's a co-author in the book, have spent a lot of time thinking about gender differences and advancement. Linda has worked very extensively on gender differences in negotiation. I've done a lot of work on gender differences in confidence and competition. And the, the more we sort of started to look at this from a research perspective, 
what has been really exciting about this work is that it seems these initial conditions contribute to a lot of the differences that we keep talking about in terms of gender in the labor market. It contributes to differences in wages, differences in negotiation, differences in advancement. And while we know that all those differences are there, we haven't understood that there could be sort of this structural problem that's contributing to all of them. And while it's hard to think about how do we equalize wages, how do we make sure that men and women negotiate equally, figuring out how to equalize the distribution of work assignments, equalizing how we spend every single day in the office is not so hard, especially because we're talking about these non-promotable tasks that everybody can do a pretty good job at. So the reason why we wrote the book was that we suddenly uncovered something to, that seemed to be one of the important anchors that have been holding women back. And it's an anchor that pretty easily can be lifted. It is it is not doesn't require um, you know a lot of structural changes. It just requires that we recognize, you know, when you talk to organizations, some of them will say, oh, all work is promotable. Well, it turns out that if some work is less promotable than other work, then effectively it becomes non-promotable. So yeah. understanding that and thinking about how do we get better at distributing this work? How do we get better at recognizing it? How do we set up expectations for how much of this non-promotable work you should be doing that can help give all of the new employees that we have come into an organization a better shot of showing what their true potential is. So, so let me ask you this, Lisa. So um, non-promotable work, clearly very important in academic institutions, large companies that are hierarchically organized. You're moving to a regime where entrepreneurship and startups are going to drive the economy. Um, where, you know, you can have an entrepreneur who is a man or woman, and if it's a woman, she is in charge, and she can essentially do whatever she wants. So is this a symptom of this industrial revolution that we had last 50 years, setting up this large companies, large academic institutions where males make decisions and, you know, so maybe in the future, maybe we don't have them. What do you think? I, I think there will always, um, independent of how you, um, you, you know, if you're working all by yourself, you're going to be doing both the non-promotable and promotable, yes, and there's yes, no no difference yes. in the yeah. in the distribution. But the minute you have multiple people working together, uh, there's going to be work that gets more recognition uh, than other work, and within those teams it's not to say that everybody should be doing the same work uh, once we know who is good at doing what we should allocate the work according to that but it's it's hard for me to imagine uh, that non-promotable work would would ever go away in in any organization it's going to be important to recognize that um, the promotability differs and that you have to pay attention to how you distribute the non-promotable work. And it's, I mean, exactly as you're saying, this is 
critical work in, in many ways. The non-promotable work is sort of the oil that gets the entire machinery yeah. to work. Without that, uh, the organization comes to a grinding halt. Actually. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. the, you know, what's interesting about the non-promotable work is you don't get a lot of credit for doing it, but you get a lot of blame if you don't do it right, because everyone will notice that things got broken. Right. So there's there's very limited upside and tremendous downside uh, to to messing it up. So the owning of the company, the principal should recognize that from a shareholder value perspective, if, if he or she really understands the risk of the enterprise, right? So I don't know much about academic institutions, but again, you know, the the people who are managing academic institutions should really recognize that, right? But we haven't seen that happening. No, I, th I think they recognize that this work should be done. Um, the, the, who, the, who is going to do it is a question. <laughs> and and I think the interesting thing is that in most, you know, the, the work does get done. The, the, the question is who it gets done by. Um, right. And, you know, as much as we say that, you know, by not recognizing it, there's an incentive to say no and not taking on these assignments. A sure way to be fired is to never do any of the non-promotable work. If you show up in an organization and you decline helping out with any of the non-promotable assignments, no one will want to retain you. The problem is that there is um, a high return to not doing so much. There's a high return to sort of display what you might characterize as strategic incompetence. You know, there is, <laughs> you, you might be really good at doing lots of other things, but when it comes to non-promotable work, suddenly you don't know how to, um, to compile a report and make things um, line up correctly at the end. So um, it's, it is very important work, but it will always be done because it is work that doesn't truly require your specialized skills. So someone will always move in and lift the assignment, and it will tend to be the people who are least empowered within the organization. If the organization recognizes this in, in its entirety, why don't they hire somebody who is, you know, less specialized? I mean, why, why do we deploy academics on, on the staff that's not highly specialized? And so, so that's a very good point. You know, certainly what we've seen throughout academia, I think we've seen it in, in the corporate world as well, is that we've had a tendency to uh, reduce the, the size uh, of, of the number of administrative positions. Um, so mm. um, indeed, a lot of the non-promotable tasks, and that's where, you know, when I talk to my parents' generation, my mother will say, oh, there used to be so much non-promotable work, you know, this is all we did, but there was a lot more staff and uh, yeah. all of those staff positions have been eliminated and uh, administrative work still has to be done. So, um, hmm. you know, it, it's true uh, in many of these cases, the non-promotable, some of the non-promotable tasks could be done uh, by someone who has, um, you know, less experience, less education. Uh, at the yeah. same time, there will always be uh, non-promotable tasks that have to be done uh, by those who have more skills, mentoring employees, recruiting employees, uh, hiring interns. A lot yeah. of those assignments have to be done by someone who are specialized in that area. So, 
you know, one of the recommendations is also to say when we start thinking about how we distribute non-promotable work is certainly to say, is there a cheaper way to get this done? Could yeah. we hire an administrative position, someone in an administrative position who would take this on? Yeah, I mean, there's a mechanical aspect to this, as you say, you know, scheduling and getting people together. There's a mechanical aspect to it. Perhaps at some point could be delegated to artificial intelligence. But there is a human aspect to it. Um, there's hiring new people, interns, and so on and so forth that cannot be really delegated to a machine. Maybe at some point we can do it, but we are nowhere close to that. So there is still a set of human activities that a group of people find less, less interesting to them because they have other things to do and uh, really delegated to a group of people who really volunteer for them because, because they have to, almost it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. is, that the, is that the crux of the problem? Yeah, I mean, I'd, you know, it would be lovely if all of the non-promotable work could go away. And, um, you know, it, as much as we talk about non-promotable and promotable work, it really is a continuum. Um, yeah. And if if the least promotable work somehow can be done by AI and other processes, uh, we're just going to move a little bit up in the continuum, and then it's sort of the medium promotable work that will become the the, the less promotable. Um, you know, the the fact is that there are assignments uh, that require more specialized skills, uh, where we really care about producing things at an A plus. And if you have a portfolio of work that gives you more time to work on those assignments, you will, by the work assignment alone, be yeah. more likely to succeed. Yeah, I think you talk about this in the book, uh, Lisa. So one of the reasons women are volunteering and taking up these uh, these uh, tasks is that they, they they have a sort of a bigger picture. If these things are not done, things are going to break out and things are going to be bad. So they're basically sort of risk managing. We know that the guys are not going to do, you know, so sort of thing. And in the grand scheme of things, in the longitudinal uh, analysis, uh, we talked about initial conditions that that sort of puts them in a bad position over time, right? I mean, they're just trying to make the organization work but that puts them in a negative position in the in the long term. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what is so interesting about looking at this from sort of a coordination game perspective is that um, you know it's it's very easy to perceive this as women having a different perspective than the perspective taken by men. Um, because they they step in and they take it on. And I, I had a, an interesting conversation with a group of journalists um, where whenever they had a large assignment uh, for this group of journalists, one of the journalists, uh, a female, took it upon herself to write down all the deliverables and dates that they had <laughs> to fulfill. So, And it resulted in all the other journalists getting their names on pieces where she was the one who was coordinating everything. And when they talked to, to among themselves about why this was happening, they all agreed that the reason why she did this, including her, 
was because her tolerance of stress was different or lower than it was for everybody else in the team. Now, this seems like a very compelling story to say she's just different than everybody else. That's why she takes it on. But once you take this coordination game perspective, where you think about what are the different expectations that we're facing? Now, if you look at all the other journalists, when they think about should I take on this assignment of coordinating and, and writing down all the deliverables, that's not a very stressful thought process because they know yeah. that this particular female is always going to take on the job. So they don't have to feel the stress. Whereas when she thinks about it, it is an extremely stressful situation because she doesn't know who's going to take on the job. So it's it's easy to sort of portray it as she has different preferences. But because of these expectations, it's not necessarily that her preferences are any different, but the world that she's looking at is one in which the work doesn't get job done, right. whereas the right. world that everybody else is looking at is one in which the job does get done. And that by somebody else. By someone else. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so, the, yeah. so the expectations really play a critical role in in how we see these environments. Yeah. This goes back to my original hypothesis, Lisa, that men are process oriented. They don't see the big picture, I would argue, typically. So I would push back <laughs> against that um, because I, I do think that the picture you see uh, is very influenced by yeah. the norms and the culture and the expectations that you're surrounded by. Um, and you may not have to look at the big picture if there are no consequences to not looking at the big picture. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, we, we didn't talk a lot about your book. Maybe you can come back and just talk about the book next time. That's that sounds <laughs> that sounds great. That sounds great. Yeah, thanks so much for doing this, uh, spending time with me. Of course, happy to. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you.